Hello and welcome to the last episode of the first season of the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick and I'm here with Wendy. Can you believe this season is almost over already? No, not really. It seems to have flown by, doesn't it? Yeah, well, just like a Camino, really. It's, you know, you're kind of getting into it and then suddenly it's over before you know it. Hmm, true. All right, so for today's episode, we're going to wrap up the Portuguese Camino by bringing together some of the things that we've been talking about throughout the season, mentioning a few other things that we didn't get to in any of the previous episodes, and giving our top recommendations for this Camino. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's do it. All right, well, I think as we talked about during the pandemic episode, we were just really grateful to be able to do this Camino, you know, this year uh, during these uncertain times. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, we normally travel roughly about six months out of the year and we normally do a Camino every year and then do lots of other international travel as well. And of course, all of that travel all got canceled. And um, I know that lots of people had much more serious consequences uh, from this situation. So, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound like this was some traumatic thing that we couldn't travel anymore. But in a way, it, it was a little bit. And so we were very grateful just to be able to be out there walking and to actually be exploring the world in a way that felt relatively safe given the current circumstances. And I think one of the things that's really hit us since we've come home and as the weeks have gone by is that we got pretty lucky to be able to fit this Camino in when we did. Yes, things started going downhill. I mean, even when we were on the Camino, the case numbers were rising in Portugal. Uh, but then really right after we got home, right after we finished our Camino is when those numbers really started exploding. And now there are new measures coming into place where, uh, from what I understand it, technically it's not really possible to walk a Camino right now in Portugal. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, these are new measures that have just come into place today as we're recording this. Um, I mean, by the time this goes to air, I'm sure the situation will have changed again uh, in a lot of different ways. But basically, in both Spain and Portugal, the situation has gotten a lot worse. Mm -hmm. uh, in Spain, there, as we're recording this, there are various places on the Camino Frances that are that you can't get to anymore, or that are in lockdown. These are both cities and whole regions. And uh, in Portugal, they're also starting to restrict movement as well, as you mentioned. So, um, yeah, it seems like there was this window of opportunity and it turned out with both the weather and more importantly, with the pandemic, we were able to fit it in. Yeah. So we're, again, very grateful that we were able to do that. All right. So looking back on this Camino, um, you know, I think it's a really great option for a lot of people. It's very flexible. It's very customizable. You know, if you want a two-week Camino, then boom, go to Porto. You know, you can fly there internationally from other destinations and you can just start. And mm -hmm. so it's quite convenient in that way. Um, you know, if you're looking at kind of among the main Caminos, if you only have about two weeks, I'd be looking at at the Portuguese or at the Primitivo, but that's usually a lot more difficult to get to Oviedo than it is to get to Porto. So it's just something that you can really uh, just just arrive and, and start. Actually, if you really want to do something a little bit crazy, uh, some people will fly into Porto and just begin walking from the airport. Yeah, because the airport is actually kind of on the, it's not directly on the Camino, obviously, but uh, you pass pretty close by it. So, you know, you're already kind of getting a head start, let's say, on your first day if you start from the airport instead of starting from the city center of Porto. And it's pretty easy to get back from Santiago to Porto. So if you have a return flight, um, it's pretty easy to get in and out compared with a lot of other communities. You know, of course, the, the classic example is Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, the start of the Camino Frances, which is really hard to get to no matter where you're coming from. 
Yep, we had quite a time trying to get there. We uh, missed our train and got there a day later, and it was all a big mess. Uh, but that's a whole other story, which maybe we'll tell one of these days. Uh, but yeah, the airport thing is interesting. I don't know how many people really do this. I had read it, and then we heard it as well from uh, Fernanda at Casa de Fernanda. She gets a lot of German pilgrims, and she said that it's particularly a popular thing to do among Germans because it means that they can take just two weeks holiday. Of course, that's not specific to Germans. Anyone could do that. So I don't know why this idea has caught on apparently in Germany. But if you only had two weeks of holidays, then one way to make that work, um, walking you know, the Camino from Porto de Santiago, is to start straight from the airport. Right. So the point is that it's a very accessible Camino in terms of, of getting there in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also obviously do this two-week Camino from Porto, which is what most people do. If you have a lot more time and you want to do a longer Camino, by all means, start from Lisbon and do a four- to five-week Camino, and, and that'll be great, you know, as it was for us. Yep, and I do recommend it. And then the other option, of course, from Porto is that you have the choice of coastal or central, which I think, as we learned with L, gives you a kind of different uh, experience. And so you mm-hmm. can, you know, pick and choose what you want. And I think quite a few people come back and do a second uh, Camino in Portugal as well, because you can really, you know, if you take into account the coastal and central and then the Variante Espiritual as well, you could do, for example, what we did, let's say, the central and the Variante Espiritual, then we could do it again mm-hmm. and do the coastal and then do the, the regular route and not do the Variante Espiritual. And then you've basically got an entirely different Camino with only, I think, maybe two, three days uh, that are the same as what you've done before. Yeah. And another thing that makes it even more flexible, more than other communities, is you could actually do both all in one go. You could do a circular route, which, as we mentioned before, does seem to be a somewhat popular thing to do this year in 2020, uh, you know, because of the unique situation. So for people who didn't want to cross the border into Spain, uh, they could walk up the coastal, up as far as the border at Valencia, and then walk down the coastal. And because of the signage because you have arrows pointing in to Santiago one way and to the Fatima the other way. Uh, you don't have to worry about walking against the signs and not being able to find your way. So if the idea appears to you appeals to you of having a circular walk and ending up back where you started, which of course is how the medieval pilgrims did it, as you always like to remind me, um, then you can actually do that pretty easily on this route as well. Definitely. Um, so how would you compare this with other Caminos? I mean, obviously you're in Portugal and not in Spain. Uh, all of our other Caminos have been pretty much solely in Spain, apart from Central and port You have that first day in France. So there are, are the unique cultural aspects, which we have gone into a little bit. So that does make it different. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the road walking hit us quite a bit on this Camino. If you look at the last two that we've done, uh, there wasn't a lot of road walking at all. Um, right. So the Camino Primitivo, because it's in Asturias and Galicia, you're in these kind of mountainous areas. And the Camino de Madrid, which we did last year, uh, was also very rural and there was hardly any road walking at all. There was a lot of um, pine forest walking mm. uh, on sandy trails, which you liked a lot. Yes, I did. And Love the also, sandy pine forest. And also the meseta towards the back end of that Camino. So you're, you know, you're walking among fields and things like that. Um, so we did have to get used to the road walking. Yeah, which I'm not a huge fan of, I must say. So... Yeah, be prepared for that. And just, I would just say that 
you know, rather than just blanket saying there's a huge amount of road walking on this Camino, I would say that the road walking in particular was in that stretch leading up to Porto, if you start from Lisbon, so probably the last five days uh, towards Porto. And then the first three days out of Porto on the other side is when you get the cobblestones if you're going on the central route. Yes. And I'm even less a fan of cobblestones than I am of road walking. So, um, yeah, if you have feet problems like me, that is something to keep in mind. Uh, a couple of other things that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, firstly, that there are a lot of barking dogs on this Camino. Yes, um, which is something that we had read about and heard about beforehand. Um, and lots of pilgrims had complained about them and had been quite scared of them, it seems. And so, yeah, we thought we should at least mention it here because they definitely are there. Um, and you'll often see them uh, tied up inside, you know, someone's yard. Um, sometimes they're not tied up, but they are usually behind a fence. So while they do bark a lot, um, they usually can't get to you. <clears throat> so they're not really, you know, posing a physical threat. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it, it seems that they are kind of trained to be guard dogs more than, say, companion animals. So they're not terribly friendly. They're, you know, trying to scare you away, um, and protect their, um, the property of of the person who lives there. Um, so yeah, there were one or two times when there was a dog that was not behind a fence and was kind of following us. And on those occasions, I was very glad that I had a walking stick with me because I was able to, I mean, they weren't attacking us, but I was able to scare them off uh, with the stick so that they didn't come close to us. So in the end, it wasn't, I mean, in our experience, it wasn't as bad as, as it might have been or as perhaps as we've been led to believe. Um, but it is something, and just the barking, you'll just mm. hear it all the time. Yeah, yeah, that in itself can can be quite unnerving, um, you know, when you're otherwise in quite a peaceful countryside setting. Um, I mean, obviously, we're not talking about being out in the middle of nowhere in rural areas. We're talking about places where there are houses, so typically in villages and kind of outskirts kind of areas. But it would otherwise be, you know, a quiet and peaceful place to walk through. But then you just have these dogs just constantly barking. I don't know how the people put up with it, the people who live in those houses, because it would drive me nuts. Um, but anyway, it's very common for people to have dogs in their yards. Another thing that we haven't mentioned yet are the eucalyptus forests and this is something that people who have walked other Caminos will be very familiar with. I mean I remember walking the Camino Frances, our first Camino, and I think it wasn't really until the very end that you come to these eucalyptus forests in Galicia mm. and the first time we saw it we were just really surprised and we hadn't kind of read about it and thought what are these eucalyptus forests doing in a you know country that doesn't have koalas. Um, <laughs> but it's really just that that end part when you're walking something like the Camino Frances. But these eucalyptus plantations are very widespread in Portugal as well. So if you are walking the Portuguese Camino and even from Lisbon, you're going to come across these eucalyptus plantations throughout the whole Camino. Yeah. So yeah, plantation is perhaps a better word than forest because, you know, it's not a naturally growing forest. Obviously, eucalyptus are not native to Portugal or Spain. They've been imported here and they are grown 
um, you know, on an industrial scale uh, in order to make paper mostly, I believe, because they grow really, really quickly. And um, they also, you know, are not great for the environment. They soak up a lot of water, so they're causing drought issues, and they can also lead to fires as well. And forest fires have been a major problem in Portugal. So, um, but they smell really nice. <laughs> well, we did meet some Portuguese pilgrims, and one of them railed against them, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He was saying they are the the plague of Portugal. I think he said, or something like that. <laughs> Maybe that's a bit over dramatic, but uh, but they have it. But the interesting thing is. You know, how you react to eucalyptus plantations as a pilgrim sort of depends on what the root's been like. Mm. You know, if you've seen kind of a lot of them, you sort of think, oh, God, not another one of these um, eucalyptus plantations. But if you've been doing a lot of road walking, you really welcome the chance to be among trees, even if it's, as you said, not a natural forest. Um, you know, usually you're walking on a, a nice dirt path when you're walking through the plantation. So it can be quite pleasant as well, depending on, you know, what you've been walking on previously. Yeah, for sure. All right. But overall, this is a great Camino for anybody who wants to do it. You can be a, a beginner Camino because there's a lot of infrastructure from Porto onwards. Uh, if you want to send your baggage, you can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of albergues. Um, you know, even during the pandemic, once we got sort of past Porto, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult to find albergues before Porto. Of course it was. Um, and so there's, it has a lot going for it. Yeah. And it is quite a popular one as well. So a lot of people do do the Portuguese Camino as their first Camino um, or as their second Camino. Um, and, you know, we have a few more under our belt, but we also really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I think it's good for anyone, really. All right. Now, one thing that we have to mention, it's not very pleasant, but it is something that, that needs to be discussed, is that while we were on the Camino towards the back end, we were maybe already in Spain by this point. Uh, I'm not quite sure. Or almost uh... in Spain. It was when we were staying at Mar Dentro. So that was still in Portugal, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Actually, that was just before Porto. So it was earlier than I thought. But um, we became aware that two female pilgrims who had started walking from Lisbon were attacked about 20 kilometers outside of Lisbon, just past Alpriat, which is usually where you can stay in an albergue, but the albergue is closed uh, for, was closed for the pandemic and so they were walking in the afternoon past this albergue to try to get to the next village and they were attacked uh, by a man there yes uh so it was there was a very detailed account the the victims one of the victims herself wrote a very detailed account of what happened uh on a forum post um asking for help from the pilgrim community basically because the Portuguese police were unfortunately not taking the situation seriously at all and they felt like nothing was being done to try to catch the person who had attacked them and um, it was a sexual assault and the police were just kind of blowing that off and treating it like it was um, you know just a robbery or something when it was definitely not a robbery. So um, they did get some help in the end. Uh, the pilgrim community really got behind them and um, people are actively working uh, on this case. Uh, but yeah, it was a really scary thing, obviously, for them. Uh, fortunately, one of them was stabbed, but I don't believe that she was too seriously injured. Um, and yeah, the attempted rape was not successful, so obviously that's great. Uh, but it did come out that this was not the first time that this has happened in that area. Uh, and actually women have been raped there at exactly that same spot. 
So, yeah, it seems to be an ongoing situation that the police, at least at the time, were not particularly interested in pursuing. So um, that's a very scary thing for for pilgrims and for female pilgrims in particular. So we are currently encouraging people to skip over that first stage, or at least that section of it, um, because it just doesn't seem very prudent to walk past there when we know that this guy is still out there. Yeah, and so at least two women who we know of and who we've been in contact with through the forums have walked. They were walking uh, after us, you know, a few weeks after us, and they both did skip over that section. It's quite easy to do if you start at the Cathedral in Lisbon and you walk about eight kilometers, I think it is, to an area called Pac de Nassoins, uh, which is the old World Expo site uh, from uh, Expo 98. And there's a train station there called Orient, and you can just get a commuter train and it takes you right past Alpriat and past this area to a town called Alverca, or you can go even further to uh, Villa Franca de Xira. Uh, but it's actually quite a nice walk from Alverca to Villa Franca de Xira. So I would recommend going to Alverca and then walking from there, and then you're past the danger zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we do hope, obviously, it's quite disconcerting that the Portuguese police is not taking this seriously. Apparently, there was a series of incidents like this on the Via della Plata a few years ago, and there was one particular uh, section uh, that was considered dangerous because it was the same perpetrator, and eventually he was caught and apprehended, and now there haven't been any reports of any incidents like that then. So, you know, it's a shame because it, all it takes is just a, you know, a crackdown, mm-hmm. taking these these uh, complaints seriously, and uh, finding um, the perpetrator and, and arresting him, and then, you know, it'll hopefully be safe for everybody after that. Yeah, and maybe by the time you're listening to this, this guy has been caught and it is perfectly safe. Um, so, but I would just do be aware of it and check the forums. If you look at Camino de Santiago.me, um, you will find the post there and you can see any updates about the situation there. But people who are active on the forum, including moderators and administrators, they are uh, getting involved in this as well. All right, so hopefully we can have a well a good outcome at least for people who are going to walk in the future. Mm-hmm. All right, so to bring it back to more positive things, we're going to talk about our top three recommendations for the Portuguese route of the Camino de Santiago. Mm-hmm. My first recommendation is not to be afraid to take it slow. And that is true for all Caminos, really, but I think particularly for this one, there are some good examples of that. And I think sometimes I'm a little bit keen to walk further than you are on any given day. Yeah, that's fair. And, you know, you talk to people sometimes and they say, oh, I walked, you know, 35 kilometers or 40 kilometers or whatever it is um, in one day. And, you know, it, it turns into a small amount of competition or there's a little bit of an idea about how far can you walk or, you know, how quickly can you do this Camino? But that's not the point of it. No. And I think that really goes actually a little bit against the spirit of the Camino. You should try to soak it up. And, and we like being on Camino. So if we stay on Camino, if we walk shorter days, it lasts for longer. So, True. Uh, you know, I have to remind myself of that sometimes. But just a couple of examples on the Portuguese Camino. If you're in the section still in Portugal, but beyond Porto, um, from Barcelos, you can do about a 30 kilometer day to Ponte de Lima. And those are both kind of classic Camino towns, end of stage type of towns with lots of things to see and, and do. And there's lots of albergues and other kinds of things. But right in the middle of that stretch is Casa de Fernanda. And that's, you know, this amazing albergue that, that everybody raves about and that we loved. And a lot of people, I think, end up having to choose between Casa de Fernanda and 
Ponte de Lima. Or they think they have to choose. Or think they have to choose. And I mean, some people have time constraints, which is mm-hmm. which is fair enough. I mean, we didn't have that um, on this Camino, although it turned out in the end that we did. But uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, we didn't. Um, and so we stayed both of those uh, both of those places and what that meant was we did about a 15 kilometer day and another 15 kilometer day i think something like that 16 and 14 maybe um and so we could have certainly walked more both of those days um but you know we wanted those two experiences uh, Mm -hmm. of staying in those two places and we got them and i think that was important and the other thing is you know it's nice to give yourself a short day every once in a while as well yeah um you know because you can walk a bit more slowly those were beautiful days as well in terms of uh the landscape there were a lot of vineyards and it was nice country walking and the weather was good and so we could just take it easy we could arrive around lunchtime Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we were at Casa de Fernanda, a lot of other pilgrims had arrived at a similar time and we had a, an afternoon spent talking with them, which was great. And in Ponta de Lima, there's a lot of other things to, to see and do. So we, we had time to do all that as well. Yeah, that's the other thing is that a lot of these towns are really worth exploring. You know, Ponta de Lima is just one example of a town where you could spend several hours, you know, as a tourist there. Uh, but you're probably not going to do that if you arrive at, say, 5 p.m. or even 4 p.m. Uh, you won't have energy and you won't have, you know, much daylight. So, yeah, sometimes it's worthwhile doing a short day if you know that there are things that you want to see at the place where you're going to be sleeping that night. Yeah, and I think for places like Porto and Coimbra, um you can certainly do that. You can certainly sort of set up your stages so that you do have a kind of shorter day uh, going in and then that gives you the whole afternoon to explore and you're not just completely worn out because you've walked over 30 kilometers and, uh, you know, you don't have the energy to go out and, and explore. Mm-hmm. And you can also have a rest day in those towns as well. Absolutely. And especially in a town like Porto, even if you're coming either from Lisbon or if you're arriving directly to begin your Camino in Porto. I mean, personally, I wouldn't recommend um, walking straight out of the airport and just (laughs) jumping on the Camino because you're going to miss out on Porto, which is unless you have plans to come back to it at the end, um, because it's an amazing city. Mm hmm. Um, and, you know, we've been there several times, so we didn't take a rest day this time. But, you know, certainly if we'd never been there before, I would want to take a day or maybe even two days mm-hmm. and, and explore Porto because it's, there's a huge amount to see and do there. Yep, for sure. All right. Your first recommendation? Okay. Um, well, it's a very specific one, uh, but I am going to recommend one of the really special albergues that we stayed at. And there were a few really special ones, uh, but the one that sticks out most in my mind is the Albergue Moinho Garcia, uh, which we've talked about before. It was inside a mill. Moinho means mill, so it's actually two old water mills that have been converted into an albergue. Uh, so the smaller mill is a now like a double room, and that's where we stayed, and then the larger mill has been turned into a dormitory. So it's just such a wonderful thing, first of all, to be sleeping inside this historic building and you can hear the water rushing underneath you. At least in the mill that we were in, you can actually see the water underneath you as well because part of the floor is a glass floor. And it's in the middle of the forest, in the middle of nowhere, and there's a waterfall right there where you can jump in and swim and uh, have a shower in the waterfall. 
And it was just such a rejuvenating experience. And um, yeah, as you've mentioned before, I called it our vacation away from our Camino, which was what it felt like. And I think I kind of needed that at that point because we didn't actually take any full rest days on this Camino, uh, which we normally would do. Um, but again, because we have already been to places like Porto and Coimbra and Tomar, if we had never been to them before, then... I think we probably would have taken a whole day uh, probably at each of those. Uh, but since we'd already been to them, we took some short days like we've been talking about, but we didn't have any full rest days. And even, you know, when on the day we went to Moeno Garcia, we didn't have a full rest day, but it was a very short walk. I don't remember what it was, maybe something like 12 or 14 kilometers. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, so we arrived probably about 10.30 in the morning, and then we were able to just hang out and relax there the whole day, which was just really great. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a bit off the Camino, um, so it's something that you wouldn't come across by accident, uh, but I do think that it's worth planning it into uh, one of your stages when you get around that point. And we just found it because we saw an ad for it. We saw a little poster on a tree somewhere on the Camino and the photo looked really beautiful. And so we ended up, you know, rejigging our plan a little bit so that we could stay there. And it's not that far off the Camino. It's, what is it, about uh, 1.3 kilometers? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so um, definitely doable and one I would highly recommend. Yeah, and I think, you know, almost combining our, our two tips into one here is that, you know, we, as you mentioned, we hadn't planned on staying there and we did change up our itinerary a little bit. But, you know, I think if you get a recommendation or if you, you see something that you think you're really going to like, you know, don't be afraid to do that either. And rather than saying, no, we've got to, you know, do our mm. 25 kilometers today and we've got to be, you know, in this town within three days to, you know, keep making time. If you have the time or, you know, if you allow yourself more time, more than you think you'll need, mm -hmm. um, then you have the opportunity to do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. Which is always a good idea because you never know when you might need an extra day, if you might have an injury or, you know, all kinds of things could come up. So it is good to give yourself a little bit of a time cushion if possible so that you can take advantage of opportunities like this. All right. For my second tip, uh, we actually had to flip a coin to see who got to use this as their tip uh, because we both wanted to do it. And it's a fairly obvious one um, based on our previous episode. And that is to take the Variante Espiritual. Yep. So as we mentioned, this is a, a diversion off the Camino or it's an official, officially recognized variant uh, right towards the end, right once you're already in Spain. Um, and it just, for a little three-day diversion, it just has everything that you could want, you know, in terms of a, a few days on the Camino. You've got a couple of monasteries on the first day, so which are really interesting for, for historical purposes. Um, for cultural purposes, you have a, a town like Combaro with its orios, these granaries that are right at the ocean, which is really interesting to see. In terms of scenery, you do have the ocean, um, and you get to see that a couple of times. And then you also have forests, you have eucalyptus forests or eucalyptus plantation as always, but then you have the water and stone route, um, which as we've mentioned, is probably our favorite stretch of the entire Camino. So, and then you have the boat trip at the end. Mm -hmm. So in just, you know, two and a bit days, you, you pack a lot in um, and it's just definitely worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that, if I had won the coin toss, that would be my number one tip for sure. <laughs> All right. And your second tip? Okay, um, it's something that we've 
also already alluded to a little bit, but I just want to emphasize that there is a lot of road walking uh, and also cobblestones. So keep that in mind when you're choosing your footwear, for example. Um, you probably don't want to go in trail runners. You want to, or hiking boots. I also, I don't think I would recommend. I never really hike in hiking boots anymore. Anyway, I prefer shoes. Um, but yeah, I would suggest shoes that are made for walking on roads as opposed to something that's made for hiking in, in mountains and on trails and stuff because you will be on uh, asphalt a lot of the time and then also on cobblestones. So I would want something that had a lot of support and a lot of cushion uh, because otherwise you're really going to feel those cobblestones and it's not going to feel very good. Yeah, and that can lead to a variety of problems. Um, you have your plantar fasciitis, and so that has its own subset of problems. <laughs> um, you know, I was suffering from some minor shin splints because of the cobblestones as well. So it can, you know, hit you in a variety of different ways, I guess. Yep. All right. Uh, my final tip. Uh, is just uh, a particular recommendation like your first one mm -hmm. and that was if you're coming from Porto doing the central route on that first night out of Porto a great place to stay is the monastery that we've mentioned a couple of times already which is called Veiral and most people go to Villarino, which is about, I think, just less than two kilometers further. Like if you look at a typical stage coming out of Porto, then that's that's where it would end in Villarino. But we love staying in this monastery. Um, we met a couple of other pilgrims who were doing it. And the woman who runs it, Carla, was very, very nice. She was actually the one who thought we were Portuguese, um, having met us for 15 or 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, and big, big ego boost for us when our <laughs> Portuguese could be mistaken for someone who was actually Portuguese. <laughs> Um, and we just really liked it there. There's a little shop where you can uh, buy some things uh, and cook there in the kitchen. Um, and it's just a beautiful complex and it's, it's well worth it. You know, we had considered, I think, as we mentioned, walking the coastal route just for one day or one and a half days out of Porto to kind of, it's supposed to be a nicer exit. But if you do that, then you miss this monastery. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought it was, it was a really great place to stay. Yeah, so I'm glad that we didn't do that coastal route. I'm glad that we stuck to uh, the regular central route. And maybe now we will go back and have a, a coastal Portuguese Camino. Because as you said, you can have almost a completely different one by going coastal instead of central and by, uh, you know, not doing the Variante Espiritual this time. So yeah, I think Vaidon is reason enough to do the whole central if that's the one that you want to do. Yep, I agree. All right, and your final tip. Okay, well, this one is probably uh, pretty predictable coming from me, uh, but it's to learn a little bit of the local languages of the places that you're going to be passing through. So specifically Portuguese and Spanish, I guess, goes without saying, but you might want to learn a bit of Galego as well. Um, Obviously, that would not be essential in terms of being able to communicate with people. If you already speak Spanish, everyone who you meet in Galicia is going to be able to speak Spanish. But um, for me, it opens a lot of... Well, it just opened my eyes to Galician culture. And now I'm much more aware of um, Galician history and also its music and literature and things like that. So 
my love for languages and my love for travel, they really fuel each other and I find that they complement each other very well. So I honestly always recommend that people learn at least a few words and phrases of the local language and the place where they're going. Um, and uh, so yeah, I would recommend it even for Galicia if, if that's something that you're interested in and definitely for Portugal. Um, even though we have said that Portuguese people do tend to speak English very well, so you might find that it's not strictly necessary for communication purposes, but it's it will be very much appreciated by the people who you do speak to, and it will, you know, open doors that way, um, and I think people will be much more receptive when they see that you're trying to make an effort to, to, to speak their language. Yeah, and I think just a related point about Galego is that if you already speak Spanish, you know, one way of looking at it is to think, well, I don't need to learn any Galego because I already speak Castilian Spanish and people are going to speak it here. Um, but it's very accessible if you already speak Spanish, which is a similar language. So as you said in the last episode, you can really get stuck into the the culture and the stuff that you might be interested in straight away mm -hmm. um, because you don't have to go through beginner material just to find your footing in the language. You basically already have that before you've even started. Yeah, that's a really good point. I just yesterday or the day before finished uh, my first book in Galego, which is pretty exciting. I mean, granted, it's not uh, an adult book exactly. It's more of a young adult book written for teenagers or, or preteens. Um, but yeah, it was able to just get engrossed in the story. You know, the first couple of chapters, I'd say it was a little bit slower because I was still getting used to, you know, how things are written in Galego. But then I just picked it up really easily and I could just get engrossed and carried away by this story. And it was a real page turner, even though it was for 12 year olds, it was actually full of adventure. And it was about the Camino as well. It was a story of four um, uh, kids on a school group, school trip, uh, on the Camino. So they're doing kind of a half Camino where they're, uh, they started across the border, uh, in France, in Saint-Port, actually, not Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, uh, Saint but Saint-Port. And, uh, so then they would walk maybe 12 or 15 kilometers, and then they would have a bus that would come and pick them up and take them to the next town. Um, so obviously it was not, you know, the kind of Camino that I'm used to, but still there was lots of, um, history about the Camino that was interwoven into the story. So I really genuinely enjoyed reading this story and I would have enjoyed it, you know, even if it had been in English, but it was just so cool to be able to read in Galego about the Camino. And now I'm starting another book and that one is written for I'd say a slightly older audience because the characters are more like 18. They've just graduated from high school. So ready to step it up a notch. All right. Well, we'll leave it there in terms of languages. Otherwise, you might go on all night. <laughs> um, so that is it for the first season of the podcast. We hope to be back very shortly with our second season, but it does depend a little bit on the pandemic situation in terms of when we'll be able to go on Camino again. Though, if all goes well, it should be pretty soon. Yep. Fingers crossed. That's what we're hoping for. In the meantime, please visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, this podcast is just one part of the Spirit of the Camino project. So while the podcast itself will be on a little bit of a hiatus, um, 
the rest of the project will keep going strong. I publish new articles and photos regularly on all of our platforms. So we look forward to connecting with you through the website or social media and hearing your feedback about this season of the podcast. So until next time, bon camino. And buen camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino.